So, David wanted to build God an exalted temple. And God said, no, you're not the guy. Now, what would you do with that? How would you feel about that? David could have pushed back, could have said, what's the matter with you? I want to do something exalted for your name. And you say, no, what's with that? You know, you ought to be glad that somebody somewhere wants to do something nice for you. So, you know, David could have gotten huffy about this and says, you know what? I want to do this. But why? Why does God say, you're not the guy? It's because God already has a plan in place, which he made before the foundation of the world. He knows what he wants to have happen and who he wants to do it. So, that means that God allows David to do certain things. But then he also does not allow David to do other things. And if David fulfills the purpose for which God created him, that's enough. So the important thing in life is not doing what you want to do and what you make up. The really important thing is to do what God wants. The purpose for which he made you. So I'm going to read here the whole chapter and then we're going to come back and look at it. This is 2 Samuel chapter 8. It says that after this, came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. The Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Beta and from Berothai, the cities of Hadadezer, David 
took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. Now what we see in most of this chapter is that David is making peace for Israel all around. And these nations are surrounding Israel on all sides. The Philistines are on the west, Moab is to the east, Zobah and the Syrians are to the north, Amalek is in the southwest. Edom is in the southeast. You might think, well, gosh, David is just conquering a bunch of people. What got into him? What is he doing to all these people? But there's a reason for why he's doing this. All these nations continually attacked Israel. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 47, it talks about what Saul did. And it says, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And the verb for plundered is in a certain tense that emphasizes that it was happening continually. So the situation was all of these nations that are the same nations here in 2 Samuel 8, were harassing Israel, provoking attack, stealing things, and Saul had to fight them on every side. So David 
isn't all of a sudden deciding I'm going to take over these kingdoms. He is putting an end to these nations' abilities to attack Israel. He is saying enough is enough. So, he's defeating the Philistines there in verse 1. And this, this name, Methegama, literally means the bridle of the mother city. And what he's doing is he's taking over, even up to their chief city. And this isn't the end of the Philistines. This is just the end of their ability to attack Israel at will. He's saying, forget this. We're going to have peace. And it's the same with Moab. And you notice it sounds pretty intense that he would lie them down, measure them with a line, put two-thirds of them to death. It sounds really harsh until you realize these guys were attacking Israel all the time. He's lucky. They're lucky. He doesn't put them all to death. They will never change their minds. So he's saying, you can't do this anymore. And then Hadadezer. He's one of these guys who wants to be big. And there he is going to the Euphrates River to recover his territory. And incidentally, Hamath, there in verse 9, Hamath is between Zobah, which is a Syrian city-state, and the Euphrates. So as Hadadezer is on his way to the Euphrates to recover territory and show that he's a stud, he has to tromp on through Hamath. And David taking care of Hadadezer really helps Hamath. And you notice that David is not at war with Hamath. He's not against everybody. He's just saying enough is enough to these perpetual, continual enemies of Israel. So these Syrians and the Syrians of Damascus, these are guys that just pick on people who are weaker than they, and they take stuff. So... David says, no way. And he fights them, and he defeats them. And it says in verse 4, he takes from them 1,000 chariots, and he hamstrings the horses. That means he cuts their tendons so that they can no longer be used as weapons of war. And that sounds harsh. But it says in Deuteronomy 17, that a king is not to multiply horses and chariots for himself. Because the tendency would be to depend on horses and chariots instead of the Lord. And so David is evidently complying with that and saying, you know, we're going to have a hundred chariots and that's it. Could have had a thousand. But he's saying, no. We're going to do what the Lord says and trust in him. 
So Tori, king of Hamath, says thank you and gives David a bunch of gold, silver, and bronze stuff because David helped Tori, king of Hamath, out there and says, boy, anybody who gets rid of Hadadies is a friend of mine. And David says, okay. Now, the result of all this conflict is peace on every side so that God's temple can be built in peace. That is what David is doing. And we know this from 1 Chronicles 22, verses 7 to 10. I'll read it to you. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, or peaceful. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So here we get God telling David flat out, this is why it's not right for you to build my temple. You're a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood in the earth. And that's not fitting for you to build my temple. Now, your son is going to be a man of rest. That's his name. And I'm going to give peace and quiet to Israel. My temple will be built in peace by a man of peace. That is my will. So, God is giving rest to Solomon in the future by David establishing that peace right now. And David is winning battles through the help of the Lord. You notice twice in verses 6 and verse 14, it says, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. God is helping David win these battles. It's God's will. Do you see that? He doesn't help David to do anything that's not his will. So this is David fulfilling one of his functions in God's eternal plan to establish this peace so that this house of worship for God can be built according to the will of God. Now these victories did not come easy. David had to trust God to help him. You know, he's talking about a thousand chariots. That'd be like having a thousand tanks. And if David kills 20,000 foot soldiers, how many were his guys? 
I would not be surprised to find out that in almost every situation, David was outnumbered. And he would have to go into battle trusting God where he says, one of you shall chase a hundred, five of you will chase a thousand. You know, I will multiply your ability to attack your foes. Numbers will not be an issue. And you can tell that these situations happened. Psalm 60, I'm going to read that one. Even the superscription, because it's so interesting. This is what it says in Psalm 60. For the choir director, according to Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharam and with Aram Zobah. Now those are two of those Syrian countries. The Syrians of Damascus and the Syrians of Zobah. And Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Okay, so it's during wartime with these countries. And here's what it says. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 8. They're fighting and it's not easy. It goes on to say, you have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. These are the same enemies that are in 2 Samuel 8. Moab, Edom, Philistia, and the Syrians. And what it shows is that doing the will of God is not easy. Even though God is there to help. Even though you know this is what God wants me to do. There were some times when David lost a battle. And he has to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, If you want this to happen, you have to make it happen. 
He had to depend upon God to get those victories. Through our God, we shall do valiantly. So here he is against enemies that are probably more numerous and stronger than him, and yet he says, God, you gotta help me do the job you are calling me to do. Now that's one purpose that David is accomplishing according to the will of God, but there's another one in this chapter. And that is he's gathering supplies to build the temple. Did you notice? Uh, it comes up in verse eight. From these cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. And later on, when the temple is being built, it always mentions that the weight of the bronze was beyond measure. There was so much of it. And so David is stockpiling. And he's taking all of their gold, all of their silver, and all of their bronze. Uh, you notice that there are these golden shields in verse 7 that belong to the servants of Hadadezer. And David says, well, I'm taking those too. And then when Toy, king of Hamath, sends his son Joram with articles of gold, silver, and bronze, David says, oh, thanks, and tell your dad hi, and I really appreciate that. And he's thinking, well, this is all gonna be dedicated. I'm not keeping any of it. Little gold and silver doodads that are cool that kings send to one another, and here's something for your keychain, and David goes, oh, that's great. You know, I'm gonna dedicate all this stuff to it. It's gonna end up in the temple. He's not keeping any of it for himself. He's not taking all of their gold and silver to just accumulate. You think, well, that's awful. David taking everything. Well, where do you think these pinheads got it? They took it from somebody else. That's the kind of scum they were. So David says, well, the devil has had it long enough and I'm going to use it for God. So he's dedicating all this stuff to the Lord. It's preparation for building the temple. Now, his attitude is, if I am not allowed to build the temple, I can prepare for it with all my might. Now, God is going to let me do that. And this is what he says in 1 Chronicles 22. Quote, Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold. Now a talent is a hundred pounds. That is a hundred thousand times a hundred. That's too many numbers for me. I just kind of hit my buffer. I'm done. You do the math when you get home. Do you know how much that is? That's billions right there. But let's move on. A million talents of silver. 
bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters, and all men who are skilled for every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. So David is making the best of where God has him and what God has given him to do. And he says, all right, that I'm going to get it together for the building of the temple. But there's a third purpose being accomplished in this chapter. And it's even greater than these wars, greater than the gathering of all the supplies, David is actually fulfilling the word of God, a prophecy that was made 2,000 years before. So when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant after 20 years of being barren, she's got a really active womb it's like the kids are really mixing it up in there. And she goes to the Lord and says, if all is well, then why am I like this? And here's what the Lord says. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, now the younger twin, the one who came out second, is Jacob. And from him comes Israel. The first who came out is Esau. From him came the nation Edom. The guys who are picking on David. So David has now put garrisons in all of Edom, and Edom will serve the nation of Israel for the next 150 years. Now, that was spoken 2,000 years before. At this point, it is being fulfilled through David. Now, when the, the Esau and Jacob were grown, and Jacob took Esau's blessing, which is another can of worms for another day. Esau says, do you not have a blessing for me also, my father, for me also? And this is what Isaac says. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. And as I said, Edom served Israel for 150 years, but then they rebelled and they got away with it. Now, these two prophecies were made 2,000 years previous. 
And you could say, well, that's a long time to have just, you know, a word of God floating in the air. When's that going to happen? But see, God is watching over his word to perform it. He sees. He's not guessing. He says, this is the way it's going to be. And it doesn't matter if 2,000 years pass, it must happen. And David, as he is pursuing what God has for him, without even trying, fulfills prophecy. Now, I'm making a big deal about this for a reason, and that is Jesus prophesied and said he would come again. And when he comes again, he's going to come in glory. And he's going to judge the nations, set up the kingdom of God on the earth. And he said that about 2,000 years ago. And you could say, well, it's been a long time to just say anything you want to. And it's been an awfully long time. Is that going to happen? Well, we've got a little precedent here, don't we? God says a little thing about two unborn babies. And it comes true. So when Jesus says, I will return, he is going to return. Regardless if it's been 2,000 years, that makes no difference at all. Does everybody get that? It's not the first time there's been a 2,000 year gap. And the fact that God fulfilled that is the promise that he will fulfill everything that is written in the Bible. Everything. Nothing drops to the ground when God says it. It must happen. So, we're looking at all these things in the chapter. And what we get from this is that David is not doing what he wants to do. He is fulfilling the purpose of God that God has for him in his generation. So God says, you know, you wanted to build the temple, that's fine, but no. You're not going to do it. And David could have been saying, well, what's that, huh? I want to be the guy. But instead he says, okay, whatever you want. It's not what I want. What about my glory? It's... David serving God in the way that is pleasing to God. So is it God's plan that the temple be built in peace? David says, well, I can do that. I'm the guy. I'll do it. So that Solomon doesn't ever have to fight. 
I'll do that. And then that guy that builds the temple is going to need the supplies. I'll do that. If I can do that, I will do that. I'm good with that. Now, David may not have seen his role as a military peacemaker and somebody who's going to run around and gather up all the supplies. That may never have crossed his mind. Oh, I want to do that, you know. But as he sees God say no to this and yes to that, he says, okay, I'm good with that. And as he pursues God for the calling that he has, he never even thought about fulfilling prophecy. But that's the result. Now, did David ever say, you know, I just want to fulfill prophecy. I want to do some prophecy. Let's, what do we got? Nobody thinks about fulfilling prophecy. And yet, as David does what God wants, that's part of what God has for him too. It's the purpose of God. I'm mentioning this because our Christian life is about finding what God wants us to do and doing it. That's part of our life. That's why I read Ephesians 2 where it says, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So you can look at your life and say, God has divine appointments for me. And if I'm submitted and yielded to God and say, God, whatever you want, He's going to steer me and guide me and get me where I need to be so that I can do what God wants me to do. Now, you know that God is going to do something through you that he won't do through somebody else. He did not prepare good works in advance for you to do and then give them to somebody else. Do you see that? You think about all the men and the women in the Bible, and they're different. They do different things. And it's really amazing. Nobody is alike. God has something individual and unique, and he doesn't have to repeat himself, because he's God. So just think about that. I'm not a name brand, and neither are you. Okay? So once we get over that, then we can say, God, you have something prepared for me. You have a bunch of things prepared for me. Your will. Now, does that mean it's going to be easy? No, because David found that doing God's will is not easy. And sometimes you get beat up. And sometimes it looks like you're crashing and burning. 
And it's like, wow, what's going on? And we're tempted to think, well, if this is the will of God, then something's the matter. But again, as we're being led by God, he will bring us through these difficulties and we will stay humble and dependent on God. We're not going to walk away and say, yeah, I did the will of God. We're going to say, God, thank you for saving me and doing this. So that's important. So you know what you do then? You surrender. You surrender to Jesus. And you do it every day, and you do it when you think about it. I think the prayer that I've prayed most in my life is, here I am. Here I am. What do you want? And I, I find myself praying it all the time. And I remember all through my life, it's like, I don't know what your will is. I have not got a clue. If you ask me to make it up, man, I'm going to drive right over the cliff. None so deaf as your servant, none so blind. You got to hit me three times with the gospel hammer so I know it's you. I've just prayed, Lord, here I am. What do you want? Now, when I look back over my life, I am astounded at the insane things God has allowed me to do. There's been a bunch of stuff that he did not allow me to do. And that really bugged me. I mean, it's frustrating. I could be doing this. What's the matter with you, you know? I, I want to work for you, right? And you know, God, he does not give you the time of day, you know? You could yell at him all you want. It's not going to move him. So you say, okay, whatever you want. Whatever you want, get me where you want me. And then God fulfills his purpose. And all I can say is, is that it's far beyond what we could imagine. And you know, I imagine being powerful and famous and glorious and when I walk into the womb everybody goes oh ah and man when I walk in a room it's like Joe invisible is there lint in the room what happened but it's it's not like that because the only person you have to impress is God. Good luck. You know how you impress God? 
You say, here I am. Anything you want. You send me anywhere you want. Make me do anything you want. Here I am. You know what God says? Wow. I can work with that. And so you say, okay, I'm scared. What's he going to do to me? What's he going to do? Well, only God knows. So I can't help you there. But you know what he will do? He will do something that you never would have thought of. And you probably don't feel confident about it. And you don't even feel very good about it. And you learn to just get on with it. And say, okay, this is what you have for me. And I have to always depend upon you and never feel good about myself on that. It's whatever you want, God. Whatever you want, here I am. Can you do that? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose that's bigger than any of us can ever grasp. And yet we have a part in it because you wrote us into it. And you alone know what you have for us. And I know that part of it is just being where you put us. In that situation that we're in right now, and the situation that we would love to get out of. And yet, here we are. We're in crummy jobs. Our finances aren't everything we wish they could be. We are frustrated. We get defeated. And we wish we could be out of this. But here we are. You put us here. And we are your workmanship. So we pray that you would be in our lives and that you would accomplish your purpose in our lives. Work out your plan of the ages in us, through us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.